0: And what really plays on my mind now is that poor soul with whatever happened to her that night at the railway station, I wasn't there for it then. So that, as a mother, has been a big thing. I don't go on about it, but now that I'm older, I think I'm spilling over.
1: For the families, the real tragedy when people go missing is not knowing. There's no final resting place, no marker, no grave, and no answers. The McDermott's have the plaque in a garden bed in the Kananooka Railway Station car park, but it's not a resting place for their daughter. It was always our hope that by giving cases like Sarah's a public airing, that people might come forward with information that holds the key. There is a $1 million reward. We know there were a number of people at the Kananook Railway Station on the night Sarah was taken who never came forward. Are you one of them? Or is someone you know? Did you see anything? But not only that, do you know anyone who drove a yellow Cortina like Stephen Chalmers mentioned back in episode 4? Or, if you hung out in the retarding basin in the summer of 2000, did you stumble across the discarded handbag that Steve found? Is it in your shed? So much time has elapsed that many alliances or friendships from 1990 are sure to have shifted or broken. Remember, the police are looking for eyewitnesses or solid evidence. They aren't usually interested in theories. When someone goes missing, the ripple effect spreads widely. Peter and Sheila McDermott are the public face of this, but her brother, uncle and friends of Sarah lost her too. Vicky Petratus explores just how wide the ripple effect has been and where the case now stands.
4: A while after Sarah went missing, the woman who had sold the house in Sky Road to the McDermott's paid them a visit. She was the one who had told Sarah to park at the Canonaug Railway Station.
0: Well, after Sarah disappeared, my parents were out staying with us at the time and I was out hanging, washing the garden and the doorbell went and my mother went to the door and mum didn't know this lady. She said, oh, I came to see Sheila. And Mum said, come in, you know. Or she says, I- I've come here now. I don't know that I can. And of course, it was her old house too. And Mum said, oh, yes, you must come in, you know. And with that, I came in, you see. And Mum called me. She said, there's a lady here to see you, Sheila. And of course, when I came in, it was Val. Val. And, of course, she just came and put her arms around me and whatnot. She says, I can't get over it. And I got her to sit down. And, of course, she was in tears. Mm. She said, I feel guilty. She said, I told Sarah that it was the better station to use. I said, Val, don't you ever think like that? I said, that's no. nothing. That's I said, nothing. I said, I said, you must not think like that at all. I said, I even, wouldn't even give it a thought. You know, I said, that's nothing. And of course, she was in a terrible state, but we
4: still keep in touch. I've heard this so many times over the years. People come up to me at author talks and tell me how guilty they feel because they did something or didn't do something that led to a crime. An example that springs to mind was a man who told me that his wife sometimes gave Natalie Russell a ride home from school. But on the day Natalie was murdered, the wife got caught up with something and, well, if only that hadn't happened. The thought occurred to me in that moment that this man's wife probably felt more guilt than the actual killer. Because nothing I've ever seen or heard or read about Paul Denyer suggests he felt genuine remorse for what he did. He even seems to put himself in the same category as his victims' families. In a letter to me, he referred to the crimes as the story which still hurts many people, including me. Interestingly though, according to Detective Larry Proud, the detective from the Delta Task Force, who knew Jodie Jones from the streets of St. Kilda, he believed Jodie felt genuine remorse for what she had done to James Helcott Remember what Larry said in a previous episode?
5: My impression was she was pretty ashamed of what she'd done. She wasn't heartless. She wasn't a bad kid. And I think she'd realised what she'd done and the consequences were gonna be very heavy. So I think she started to minimise it then, but she wasn't boastful about it. She was upset about it.
4: This was echoed in the statement of a man called Dennis, who was a friend of Jodie Jones. He saw her about an hour after the murder of James Helcote when Jodie went to Theo's cafe in St Kilda to talk to youth worker Brother Alex MacDonald about what she had done. In his statement, Dennis said... I walked over to them and Jodie said to both of us, I didn't mean it to happen. Then Brother Alex asked me to take her home and she said to Brother Alex, I'm not running from it. She was upset and crying. She had been drinking, I know she had been drinking with me earlier that day, but she wasn't overly affected by alcohol. I've seen her drunk on plenty of occasions and I know that she wasn't drunk at this time. It's interesting that in all the accounts of people saying Jodie told them that she was responsible for that thing at Cananook, remorse or regret didn't feature in any of it. Sure, it's possible that seven years in prison hardened her beyond all measure, and maybe she could talk about killing Sarah and express no regret. Still, it's interesting to note that in telling people she was responsible, regret and shame are absent. If she wasn't hardened beyond all measure, could this absence of any regret be because the story isn't true? Whatever Jodie's truth is, we may never know. Detective Cole Clark is left to ponder this.
6: I remember some of the confessions were a little bit all over the place, uh, what she'd done with the body and who was there and things like that. So I don't know whether she did it. She was certainly a very good suspect at the time and still is. She's no longer with us. She died from a heroin overdose some 12 months later.
4: In the labyrinth of documents about the death of James Halkett, I came across a statement that offered a possible glimpse into Jodie's anger that led to the beating that night. A witness called Brett was at the beat in St Kilda and saw Jodie with a 17-year-old boy who I won't refer to by name. A paragraph in Brett's statement caught my eye. He said the boy went away in the car with some bloke and was away for about 20 minutes. The bloke drove him back and dropped him off the beat again. As he drove off, Jodie kicked at his door. And just then, The guy that was bashed walked through the car park and Jodie called out to him. I think she called him a derogatory name for being gay, and he told her to get fucked. He kept on walking along toward the beach, and she chased after him. She caught him in the middle of the car park and swung a punch or a hit at him. Reading this made me wonder about the reason her 17-year-old friend might have been picked up in a place called The Beat and then returned 20 minutes later. Was he one of the many teenagers making a living in one of the few ways available to street kids? Court documents said the boy had been on the streets of St Kilda since he was 13 and kept himself by working as a male prostitute. Was Jodie angry that her friend had to do this? Did she turn her anger toward James Helkert, a middle-aged man walking through the beat late in the evening? Or was there another reason she kicked the door as the man drove off? I could be way off the mark here. According to Russell Smith, one of Jodie's co-accused, she didn't start the fight with James Helcott by suggesting he was gay or trawling the beat for young men like her friend. Russell said that when James Helcott walked past, Jodie started the fight by calling out, I've seen better heads on a glass of beer. Jodie Jones lasted 14 months after the disappearance of Sarah McDermott. Most of that time, she was in jail. Her bail was revoked in the weeks after Sarah went missing, and she wasn't released until June 1991. She would die five months later. The life she led, full of drugs and violence and murder and prison, did not bode well for longevity. I've managed to get hold of some of the official court documents in the death of Jodie Ann Jones. Jodie's death seemed to be lacking any suspicious elements, so the coroner investigated her death without holding a formal inquest. Here's how he detailed the circumstances. I've removed the surname of the woman who was with Jodie at the time she died. On the afternoon of the 22nd of November, 1991, the deceased was drinking with a friend, Bridget, at the Junction Hotel, Oakley. Subsequently, the pair went to St Kilda to meet up with other friends, Once there, they acquired syringes from the Salvation Army and then purchased some heroin. They then went to a cafe in Fitzroy Street. At the cafe, Bridget met with two of her friends and the four then proceeded to the Esquire Hotel in Ackland Street for the purpose of injecting themselves with heroin. While in the room, the deceased mixed up the heroin into liquid form and each of the four injected themselves. A short time later, the deceased started to cuddle her. After some minutes, Bridget noticed that the deceased was not saying anything and tried to rouse the deceased as she appeared to be unconscious. Attempts were made to rouse the deceased by all other three persons. When these attempts failed, an ambulance was called. It was then ascertained that the deceased had died. The deceased used heroin every few weeks and, as such, it would be easy for the deceased to overdose herself with the drug without intending to do so. Toxicological analysis found the heroin in her system and also a large amount of alcohol. The alcohol alone which would have given her a reading of 0.24, would have been dangerous. By the time Sarah McDermott went missing, Detective Larry Proud had been deployed to Papua New Guinea as a peacekeeper during the war in Bougainville. He was there for six years. Larry still remembers being told that Jodie Jones had died.
5: I got told. Because I knew so well, so many times in PNG that she died, and I was a bit upset about that.
4: With Jody gone and some detectives believing she killed Sarah, it felt like the investigation seemed to stall. There were never any solid leads on the men who Jody claimed were with her at the time. If they ever existed, they vanished into thin air. A coroner's inquest was held into the disappearance of Sarah McDermott. All of the witness statements were compiled and put before the coroner. Some witness statements were included, but next to the person's name was the word deceased. Young people with drug habits were not guaranteed a long life. All up, 70 witness statements made up the brief to the coroner in May 1996. Detective Sergeant Kim Cox conducted a review of the investigation and presented his findings in a statement to the coroner. Here's what he wrote. Early information from a number of sources caused suspicion to rest upon one Jodi Ann Jones. Subsequently, Jones was interviewed and denied any involvement. Upon reviewing this investigation, I assess the evidence and information implicating Jones to be tainted and I hold serious reservations concerning any comments made by Jones. Various persons have made admissions that they were involved in the death of McDermott, or present when McDermott was killed. These avenues have been explored and those involved have admitted their comments were false. This has been a lengthy and protracted investigation. The circumstances surrounding Sarah McDermott's disappearance received widespread media attention. There have been several public appeals for assistance. Many parts of Frankston and other areas were subject to intensive searching involving land, air and water operations by police and volunteers. All investigative tools and techniques have been utilised throughout the course of this inquiry. Numerous people have been interviewed and in excess of 250 statements have been obtained. A large number of suspects have been implicated as being involved in the death of Sarah McDermott. All these persons have been interviewed and denied any involvement or exonerated. To date, sufficient evidence has not been gathered to charge any person in relation to the death. I am confident that on Wednesday the 11th of July 1990, Sarah McDermott travelled on the Frankston-bound train and alighted at the Cananook Railway Station, where her motor vehicle was parked. I am also confident that at some time shortly after 10.20pm, she met with foul play and was killed at or near her vehicle. The questions of motive and number of offenders involved is a speculative one. Despite extensive investigations, neither the body nor the murder weapon have been located. It is my opinion that Sarah McDermott has been murdered and her remains disposed of. In what was perhaps the only finding the coroner could come to, based on the evidence, the conclusion read: Sarah McDermott alighted from the Frankston-bound train at Cannanook Railway Station at approximately 10:20 p.m. on Wednesday, the 11th of July, 1990. At some time shortly after 10:20 p.m., she met with foul play and was killed at or near her vehicle by person or persons unknown. Detective Cole Clark, who's now enjoying a well-earned retirement, hopes that someone will come forward for the sake of Sarah's parents.
6: No one's come forward at this stage to say that they're involved in it. It would be lovely for someone to come out and just say that this is what's happened, this is where she is, and... It had certainly put Peter and Sheila and Alistair's mind at rest.
4: Not knowing what happened to Sarah left her family in a kind of hiatus that only families who've experienced this could possibly understand. That moment when you have to acknowledge that the search for your daughter is winding down without finding her and you have to readjust your family to be one of three at the dinner table, not four. It's an unthinkable trauma with no end. After the death of Jodie Jones, 14 months after Sarah died, it would sometimes seem to the McDermott's that the police had decided Jodie did it and now Jodie was dead, there was nothing more to investigate. But for them... It was never about who did it. It was always about finding their daughter. Added to the trauma of not knowing where she is, the McDermott's have to also try not to dwell on what she went through on the night she vanished.
7: You wonder, the fear, it's something I've said before, you don't dwell on it too much, but what was she like? Yes. What kind of fear was she in at the end and that yeah
0: no no good no, no and it and as we've got older i think that's that plays on your mind all the more you know and if mm. we only had her back somebody i think has to know something oh yeah
1: this
2: episode is brought to you by amazon prime you know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of
1: whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing.
3: Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. to get 30, 30, get 30, get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. Sold. Give it a try at
1: mintmobile.com/switch.
2: $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In
4: Sarah's investigation, detectives left no stone unturned. I remember once asking a senior police officer if they listened to psychics and he told me, sure, we would listen to psychics and if they led us to a body, we would then arrest them for murder. I don't think he was joking. So it was unusual for Victoria Police that in the case of Sarah McDermott, Cole Clark told me they listened to psychics.
6: We had about 15 to 20 psychics contact us to say, I've had a dream, that she's buried in in sand under this location near a tree and you've got your sceptics and you've got your thing, but we went and checked every one of those out just to make sure because the psychic may have been the offender who was trying to tell you where he buried her. So those little bits of information all all had to be followed through too. So it wasn't a matter of just spending the whole time on Jodie Jones and going, yeah, that's her, she's done it we'll forget about everything else. It just doesn't work that way. So as a detective, you leave no stone unturned.
4: Of course, an unknown person might have taken Sarah, but the two best suspects are Jodie Jones and Paul Denyer, one who said she did and one who said he didn't. Laurie Ratz reflects on the conundrum of this.
3: I've always thought with Denya that just because he said he didn't do it doesn't necessarily mean he didn't do it. And you can't work on the adage that, well, he's confessed to, to three others. Why wouldn't he confess to the fourth? Well, there may be a whole range of reasons. You can't look into his head. There could be a whole range of reasons why he, he might think he you know, he, he'd get a longer sentence with four or he could think of who, who knows what his thought processes are. So I wouldn't just, because he said he didn't do it, it's for the same reason, because Jody said she did do it, doesn't necessarily mean she did. And with, with Denya, because he said he didn't do it, doesn't necessarily mean he didn't.
4: Because Sarah McDermott was never found, there always remains a sliver of hope. In one conversation I had with Sheila McDermott, she told me that realistically the family knew that Sarah was gone quickly followed with, but of course you hear of women who've been locked in a basement for 30 years. And that pretty much sums it up. Unless Sarah is found, they will never know for sure. Even the police can't say for certain. Cole Clark says the amount of blood at the scene wasn't definitive.
6: There was a fair amount of blood there, but I've been to scenes and homicide scenes and many over the years where... There's only a little bit of blood and the people are dead and there's been where there's been huge amounts of blood and the people are still alive. So it is quite possible it wasn't discounted that that happened.
4: Universally, the same theme comes up over and over again with Sarah McGermit's family and friends. When you don't have an answer, you can't give up hope. And there's something more subtle When you don't know for sure whether Sarah is gone or not, then you never stop looking for her in faces around you. I spoke to Sarah's friends, Angela, Conn and Sonia, about this. When you don't know for sure, is it like a small part of your mind is always still searching for her? Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs)
1: <laughs> How can you not listen to the song? You know, I'm on my way. You know, you yeah. hear that. As soon as I hear that song, I'm on my way. Yeah. I remember singing it with her, yeah. and and you can't not think of her. It just, yeah. as soon as you hear it, mm. you just
2: until we know something definite, there is always hope. Even on her 30th anniversary, there was there is always hope, uh, and you don't ever give that up. <laughs> you don't. You don't do it on purpose. It's no. just there. Until we know something, until we hear something, there's always hope. There's a lady every now and then that I see her at Coles. She's our age, but she reminds me of Sarah at that age. And I think, God, could that be her? Would that be her? No, it wouldn't be her. But every now and then, whenever I see her, and it's only every now and then, that I think, oh my God, is that what Sarah would look like?
4: And as unimaginable as this seems, this also means that any time on the news, when there is an announcement that human remains have been found, people who knew and loved Sarah brace themselves.
2: You know what? Whenever I hear on the news that they've, they've found, found bones, already. no, no, whenever the, the, we found bones yeah. or we found remains, yeah. I think and I pray for that moment, please yeah. let it be Sarah. Please like let it be her. It's always in the back yeah, of your head. It yeah, doesn't matter where it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for, for Peter and Sheila more than anything because um, because we've kept in touch with them and they've seen us marry, divorce children. I'm sure in the back of their mind,
0: thinking, where would
2: Sarah be at yeah. now?
4: When I interviewed Sarah's childhood friend, Noni, she sent me a message after our interview. It read, Sorry I got upset. I just wanted to say that it affects every part of your life. How you raise your own kids, and you need to know where they are always. How you worry when they are late, and people say you panic too much. How you can't continue to watch some TV shows or movies. People don't always understand because it's not something you can just tell people about. And this is the message we need to take away. The lifelong ripple effect of the trauma that faces everyone who knew Sarah. Noni talks about how hard the loss has been for her.
8: When people do pass away, then you get to say goodbye, that's fine. But when you don't, you just feel like, not just myself, but my children, missed out on, on knowing her. She would have been a fantastic pseudo-auntie, well, she would have been a, good aunt, a lovely auntie to her own niece, but, I mean, she would have just been fantastic. Who knows, mother. She could even be a grandmother by now.
4: And the pain of losing Sarah is already so strong for Noni that she's scared of knowing the truth.
8: I just really cherish her friendship anyway. And and then you hope someone will come forward, but at the same time, I don't know that I want to know. So that is always, that's always a thing too. I don't want to upset Peter and Sheila. But how do I put this I don't want to know if it's if something horrible occurred. I'm not stupid like I, I realize that she's gone but I I don't I'd like to be able to say goodbye but I don't want to know any any details.
4: Sarah's friend Anna moved overseas not long after Sarah was taken. She just didn't feel safe anymore and like... Everyone else who knew Sarah and loved her, Anna is left with the memories that, had Sarah lived, would have faded into insignificance. But because Sarah vanished, they remain frozen in time, ready to surface unexpectedly at any given moment. The last time Anna saw Sarah was at the farewell dinner before Anna's overseas holiday. Sarah had something on her mind, but she didn't tell Anna what it was. Anna still has the gift Sarah gave her that night.
8: That night she was seemed a bit, not sad, but she had something on her mind and she wanted to tell me. She gave me a little Paddington bear and he was in a like a, a, sort of like a suitcase in the package and uh, had written on it, please look after me. And every time I think of Sarah, every time I look at her, I've still got it in my bedroom. I've kept it over this last 30 years, still intact. Uh, I always think about her and I say, I always wonder, you know, what Sarah wanted to tell me that night that she didn't in the end tell me because I, I could tell that she was thinking about something but maybe she wanted to tell me something, I don't know. But she seemed a little bit upset that night but I still don't know why.
4: Will the Frankston SES ever stop looking for Sarah? Not if the SES member, Brian McManus, has anything to do with it.
3: Never. Not as long as I'm around. The memorial down at Kendall Railway Station, quite a few of us go down there every year just to pay our respects to Sarah. And I personally keep in touch with, with her parents just to let them know that we're still thinking of them after all these years and we still hope and pray that one day, right, if we're out searching or something, or there's a tip-off or something like that, if the police get a tip-off, we'll be there. We'll be there straight away, and we'll do our best to try and find her for the family. (laughs) We keep our eye open the whole time we're out. I mean, some of us that have been here for some time, after we're out doing a search, the comment always comes out, be nice to find Sarah, even now, because there's still a few of us here that were involved in that, yeah. Even now, we keep asking, hoping that we come across something that indicates where she is.
4: And the relationship between the McDermott family and the SES has remained to this day. They are a family that Brian will never forget.
3: I've kept in touch with them every year since. There is a memorial at Cannonook Railway Station for Sarah, so... Every July, the SES here at Frankston, we go down to the station and we do a little service down there ourselves just in memory of poor old Sarah that we've spent many, many, many hours searching for her over the, the weeks and the years.
4: As Peter and Sheila McDermott grow older and the 30th anniversary passes, they just want their daughter back. If you know anything, please help them. I just hope and pray
0: that Somebody, before anything would happen to me, would be able to let us know.
4: The disappearance of Sarah McDermott has always been an investigation with opposing schools of thought. The Jodie Jones camp and the not-Jodie Jones camp, with some healthy and rigorous arguments between the two. Peter McDermott remembers hearing the police talk about it. Jodie Jones had died by then, Leaving so many
7: questions, huge questions. On we always kept close contact with the police. Certainly in the first few years, but before we moved, really we we came back from Queensland and we all go out for a Chinese, all the boys, and the raging discussions that used to go on round the table, even between the police, and that that. Told you that they were all thinking about it and they were all wondering, and I know that some of them still do.
4: And that hasn't changed. Now that Laurie Ratz and Cole Clark are enjoying their retirement, it seems the contemporary investigators are leaning back toward the Jody did it argument. When Detective Inspector Andrew Stamper from the Victoria Police Missing Persons Squad spoke to the media for the 30th anniversary of Sarah's disappearance, he said, There are very few murders where those involved have never spoken to anyone about it. Someone will know about Sarah's disappearance and we are again appealing for those people to come forward and speak to police. There's a problem marrying that sentiment with the Jodie Jones story. While Jodie did speak to people about it, how were her accomplices never identified? Why was she never arrested? Why hide the body if she then told everybody she did it? Why did she worry that the accomplices wouldn't stay staunch at the same time she didn't stay staunch herself? And could her MO have changed so much in seven years? that she could shift from the blitz attack on James Helcott in the car park and going through the dying man's pockets to relieve him of five dollars, that she became someone who committed a blitz attack in a car park on Sarah. And instead of taking the money and running, like she did the time before, she and her accomplices dragged Sarah to the bushes, ignored her car as a means of transport, preferring a car that had to be procured from somewhere else. It sounds to me like the person who did it was someone who took the opportunity to attack Sarah and then come back in the late hours when no one else was around to take her and remove the evidence. If it was a single offender, that person may not have told anyone and the secret dies with them. But if someone does know something for sure, just not supposition or theory, what can be gained by coming forward? I put the question to Detective Inspector Andrew Stamper. People carry a weight on their shoulders that could be alleviated by coming forward. Is that your experience as a detective, that there could be a huge relief on just getting that off your chest?
5: Absolutely. And 30 years is a long time to have carried secrets like that. And I'm sure that people out there that, that you know, have got knowledge could not have escaped seeing Peter and Sheila uh, over the years uh, and witnessing their grief, which is all very evident. So 30 years, allegiances change, relationships change. So there may have been an imperative towards maintaining a secret 30 years ago, maybe those relationships have changed, people have changed, be, there were people that knew something or were somehow involved that have moved on in life and, and are now leading very different lives to what they were 30 years ago that may have, for whatever reason, held that secret. Well, clearly, now's the time to not only to, to help us to provide the answers to the McDermott's, but also you know maybe consider the reward that's on offer as well.
4: So after 30 years, what could still be out there?
5: My firm belief is that there are still people in the community who know what happened to Sarah. Clearly we have a lot of theories about what might've happened to Sarah. And we've done a lot of investigating over the years and done a lot of searching and excavations over the years to try and find her, but still we don't have the conclusive answers to any of those important questions. My strong belief is that there are people in the community who know what happened to Sarah, know who committed a a heinous crime on Sarah and and, and where she is. The number one priority for for me would be to return uh, Sarah to Peter and Sheila. They want that little girl back. So any information that we can get around that would be our priority.
4: At the time, The police were calling for witnesses and there was a man at the station on a bike and there was a man on the station with a red jumper waiting on the opposite side of the station. People like that never ended up coming forward. So are we still hopeful that someone could say, hey, that was my dad or... That guy at work always used to talk about being on the station. Uh, This is the kind of information perhaps that people could be listening out for.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously with a wide reach uh, such as we'll get with this podcast, that that could be possible and there would be our majority that happened. It's my experience that people, for whatever reason, don't come forward. There's a a wide range of reasons why sometimes people don't come forward, but 30 years is a long time. So if people have been harbouring either a dark secret or just thought well that piece of information i had was useless well now's the time to actually let us be the judge of that and come forward in whatever means you can or want to and let us check that out so clearly what we're looking for is people that have specific information and i'd be overjoyed if someone could come forward after 30 years and say look my dad told me that he was standing on the bridge and saw something or that was me that was on the platform of the train when Sarah got off and I saw something and I went to live in New Zealand afterwards and I didn't see all the media and I'd be overjoyed if that happened. I think people that know what happened that have held a really dark secret for 30 years. So whatever happened to Sarah, I think other people would be in some way involved in that, whether or not they've been involved in after the fact or somebody's told them something and those are the people that we want to hear from and i stress there's a million dollars on offer here for information that will lead us to getting some of those answers and there's also if if people are fearful that they were involved in some way well i'd still encourage them to come forward and talk to us and uh, maybe after this amount of time there's legal arrangements that could be considered that might not make that as bad as people think so clearly the message is talk to us and there'll be a lot of focus and i know that there will be through your podcast on peter and sheila and to be able to provide them with some answers as to what happened to their little girl and where where she is would be enormous not only to them but to victoria place as well how do people come forward crime stoppers is the number one way that we say Look, I don't really care how people come forward as long as they come forward. If they want to walk into a police station and say, I want to speak to Andrew Stamper, or if they want to ring Crime Stoppers and do so anonymously, 1-800-333-000, just for the record. That's probably the easiest way, but I don't care how it happens if, if people want to get in contact with you, and you can get in contact with me. However it, however people want to do it, then do it. It's pretty easy to, uh, to communicate these days.
4: Like everyone else who has met the McDermott's and grown fond of them, I too loved spending time in their company. The thing about Peter and Sheila that stays with you is they are such lovely people. They are dignified and measured in their one desire. They just want their daughter back. They want Sarah in a place where they can lay her to rest and know where she is. When I went to visit Peter and Sheila's home, the thing that struck me was the family photos. In collections so familiar to living rooms worldwide, the subjects of the photos grow older. Peter and Sheila, their son Alistair, growing up and older, then adding his own family to the wall and to the shelves. And then there is Sarah, young, growing, and then she stops forever at 23. 23 frozen in the 1990s with her curled, flicked-back hair, young, unblemished, never to grow older. It reminded me of the line from Lawrence Binion's poem, For the Fallen, They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Because the moment Sarah McDermott met with violence on that cold winter's night, between getting off the train at Cananok Railway Station and walking to her car, She was destined to grow no older than 23. What's the worst part about not knowing what happened to Sarah? Well, she's your
0: daughter. She should be here with us. The worst part with not having her is it's getting a bit harder to try and shut out, which I have done, all the years what happened that night I've had to literally try and never ever let that in my mind too much but over the years you you know it'll sometimes come but whether it's because you're retired now and because although we're pretty active people yeah. but I find it that, that is something that's bothering me more and more and I just That's why I would love the answer. This
7: is exactly the sort of event to this shutdown business. When you sit and you're more likely to be sitting, talking about something or thinking about things because it's enforced closure.
0: It's just bringing it home that we just want to know before anything happens to us.
4: As the family is suffering the disappearance of a loved one, The McDermott's know they are not alone. I can't remember
0: who it was now, but there was somebody that was being interviewed on television and they'd had somebody missing 40 years. And I said to Peter, I wonder how they've gone through all this time. You know, you think that's one thing that I've always said to people when we're talking, they ask about Sarah and you just say, we haven't heard anything. But I always say there's one thing we are not alone. There are so many people out there in our situation, and some we think 30 years, how terrible is that? But you know, they're even longer. Some people 50 and years. I think it helps keep you right if you think, well, it's not just you.
4: In the end, it all comes down to knowing. When the McDermott's talk about Sarah, it is always about who she was and what she was like. Their stories of her keep her alive in our memories. But it's just from her mother as to how I
0: have felt about her being abducted. And I just hope and pray that somebody before anything would happen to me would be able to let us know even where she is so that we could at least have her back and have her put where we would know where she was. And that that would be a a great thing for me before anything happened to me.
4: It is my greatest hope that through the power of the podcast, someone, somewhere, will come forward with the answer the McDermott family, Peter, Sheila and Alistair, so desperately seek.